This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for Season 4 of Once Upon a Crime. We've reached over 130 episodes since first launching the podcast in June of 2016. This week, we'll also celebrate our third year anniversary. Whether you just started listening to this podcast, or if you've been with me since the beginning, I want you to know that I'm so glad you've joined me. I'm really excited to bring you some very unique and interesting series topics for season four. First up, I've decided to share with you some fascinating true crime stories I've discovered involving twins. The first episode is a story of identical twins who from a very young age were so bonded to one another that they created their own twin language to communicate. But rather than this being a temporary form of communication, they continued to speak only to one another, rejecting everyone but each other, including their own parents and siblings. Later, they would also construct a fantasy world that only they inhabited, which would lead to increasingly antisocial behavior that resulted in a shocking crime spree. I found so many fascinating elements to this truly unique true crime story that I decided not to skimp on the details, so this will be a two-part episode. This is Chapter 1 of Twin Terrors, The Case of June and Jennifer Gibbons, Part 1. Gloria and Aubrey Gibbons met when she was just 20 years old and he was 19. Originally from Barbados, Gloria and Aubrey met when they were both working at Sewell Airport. She was a telephone operator, and he was employed as a meteorologist. Aubrey was bright and a serious student who attended a private college on scholarship with the goal of becoming a doctor or a lawyer. But his home life was unhappy, with parents who argued and fought violently, separating and reuniting several times. Even so, his mother gave birth to six children. She was pregnant with her seventh when Aubrey was 18 and scheduled to take his higher school certificate. Tragically, his mother died giving birth to the child while Aubrey was away at school. He never forgave himself for not being there for his mother, but blamed his father even more for causing so much unhappiness in his mother's life. He left school, never finishing his higher education, and became estranged from his father. He met Gloria and they quickly fell in love and were married in 1955. He vowed to create the happy family that he didn't have growing up. Their first child, a boy, died soon after birth. But the next year, their daughter Greta was born, and two years later, they had a son they named David. Now with a growing family, Aubrey decided to relocate the family to England. Gloria's brother was living in Coventry and encouraged his sister and brother-in-law to leave the Caribbean for better financial opportunities. The couple arrived in England in 1960, and Aubrey took the entrance exams to join the Royal Air Force and was accepted. He would eventually work his way up to become an air traffic controller. But first, he was transferred from base to base, and it was several years before the family settled in their permanent home. Gloria stayed home to raise the children, and in 1962, she became pregnant once more. But instead of welcoming their third child, they found themselves parents of four children when she gave birth to twin girls on April 11, 1963. June Ellison Gibbons was born first, 10 minutes before her sister, Jennifer Lorraine. Aubrey and Gloria were thrilled to bring their precious daughters home to their 7-year-old sister and 4-year-old brother. They marveled at their twin babies who were alike in just about every way. However, Gloria would always say that they were not identical twins, but fraternal. Fraternal twins occur when two eggs are fertilized in the mother's womb. Identical twins develop from one zygote that splits, forming two embryos. Identical twins are much rarer, occurring in only about three of every 1,000 births worldwide. Even though June was born first, Jennifer was the stronger of the two. She reached the milestones of babyhood first, sitting, crawling, and walking. But Gloria soon noticed that the girls always wanted to do everything together. She would say that she was exhausted in the first few months of their lives because neither wanted to wait to be fed second, but cried and demanded to be fed at the same time. The family would now, and in the future, attribute the girls' quirks to their status as twins. When the girls were toddlers, the family moved once again, this time to Linton, located in Yorkshire. 
June and Jennifer were happy children. They enjoyed playing together and always were delighted to be in each other's presence. However, they developed speech later than considered normal at that time. By the age of three, they were barely speaking one or two words together. They would repeat sounds as if they thought they were words, but to their parents, they were indecipherable. Still, Aubrey and Gloria weren't worried and believed that before long, the twins would begin speaking. In 1967, when the twins were nearly five, another daughter named Rosie was born to the Gibbons family. The girls loved to play with their baby sister. In fact, she was the first of their siblings that they paid much attention to at all. Gloria chalked this up to the fact that the twins were so close and already had each other for a playmate. Although their older brother and sister were fond of them, they were busy with their own friends and interests, so the younger ones naturally paired off together. But June and Jennifer were now in school, and just like at home, they kept to themselves, communicating and interacting only with each other. At the end of their first year, their teacher observed that they became very upset if they were apart from one another at any time. Though they rarely spoke to their teacher, she believed that they did speak to other children. As time progressed, other teachers noted that the girls showed little initiative in doing schoolwork or participating in other activities. They huddled together, either silently or speaking quietly to one another in a very low volume and fast speech pattern that others could not make out or understand. When the twins were instructed to answer a question or complete an activity, they would cast their eyes down to the floor, refusing to make eye contact with others. They would stand stiff and unresponsive for minutes or even hours at a time until the teacher finally gave up. Finally, about the time they reached the age of eight, teachers and their parents began to realize that there was a serious problem. The girls could read and write fluently, but were still not speaking. Until then, both their mother Gloria and school reports simply characterized the twins as shy. But at the age of eight and a half, the Gibbons family moved once more to Devon, where Aubrey had been transferred by the RAF. While their previous classmates had grown accustomed to the silent twins and for the most part ignored them, leaving them to themselves, in their new schools, they were an oddity. Not only did they not speak or make eye contact with their classmates, but they walked and moved in a slow-motion-like way. Most of the time, the moves they made were simultaneous. For example, they would both slowly lower themselves into their chairs at the exact same time, and rise in the same way. If one twin crossed her legs or folded her arms, the other would copy her movements robotically, as if they were psychically connected and knew by instinct what the other was going to do. It was bizarre to watch. The girls, however, were not completely silent. They did speak to one another and could be heard chattering away in low voices together. But to outsiders, their language sounded like gibberish. There were several factors that caused people to think so, even though it would later be determined that they were speaking English. First, their parents had been born in Barbados and spoke with a West Indian accent, which their children also shared. Secondly, they both suffered from a speech impediment, forming their words between clenched teeth, which caused them to lisp. Finally, they spoke very quickly and their words slurred together. The girls were targeted by their classmates due to their strange antisocial behavior, speech impediment, and race. The Gibbons family was the only black family in the neighborhood, and June and Jennifer were the only black children in their elementary school. They were subjected to racist comments on top of all the other teasing. The bullying became so serious that they were allowed to leave the school grounds five minutes before their classmates at the end of the school day, lest they be attacked off of school grounds. This had, in fact, already happened in the past. While the girl's mother excused her daughter's behavior as shyness, their father, Aubrey, was growing more concerned. The girls did not speak to either one of their parents anymore and had almost never spoken to their older siblings. The only family member they did speak to was their younger sister, Rosie, the baby of the family, born when the twins were five years old. The three youngest girls shared a bedroom, and June and Jennifer enjoyed talking and playing with their little sister. Aubrey, now a corporal and assistant air traffic controller, decided to seek out an expert's opinion about his daughter's lack of speech. But he and his family were being transferred once again, this time to Hiverford West in West Wales. There, Aubrey consulted with Tim Thomas, an educational psychologist, asking for his opinion about the twins and seeking his advice about where they should be sent to school. 
He wondered if they didn't need to be sent to a special school that provided special help, such as speech therapy. Thomas listened to Aubrey and advised him to send the girls to the regular school, but he advised that the twins should be separated into different classrooms. He thought they had become too dependent on one another, and if separated, they might form other friendships and communicate with others more easily. The girls were enrolled in Haverford West County Secondary School. But school wasn't the only place where frustration was beginning to rise with the twins. At home, Gloria could get no more than a one-word answer from either of them when she tried to start a conversation. Calling the girls by her pet name for them, she would ask, What did you do in school today, twinnies? To which they might answer, Nothing much, before giggling and walking away, not speaking one more word to their mother for the rest of the evening. At dinner time, when the family sat together at the table, June and Jennifer would remain silent, their eyes downcast, eating very slowly, their movements synchronized, forks down, a tiny bit of food placed upon it, forks slowly raised to their mouths, chewing their food simultaneously. Should anyone try and include them in the dinner conversation or pose a question to either girl, they did not respond or even seem to register that they were being spoken to. They didn't make eye contact with anyone. Even when rising from the table to place their dishes in the sink, they kept their eyes cast down on their feet before making their slow, deliberate march to their bedroom. Sometimes Gloria would hear excited chatter coming from the bedroom, where little Rosie and the twins were talking and laughing together. But the moment she'd open the door, the twins would go silent and freeze in place. She would close the door in exasperation, and moments later, the chatter would begin again. The girls remained silent up until their preteen years. No matter how much teachers, school administrators, and other children tried, they refused to communicate or associate with anyone. Their school performance was decent, and they didn't misbehave, so for the most part, they were left alone. They were both intelligent girls and did especially well in English, history, and geography, but performed poorly in mathematics. Their personalities were assessed and remarked upon in their school report cards. June was described as the most intelligent and likable of the sisters, but was found to be, quote, sadly lacking in self-confidence and sociability, unquote. Jennifer was said to be the most uncooperative of the two, but rated high in leadership skills. The truth was that although observers believed the girls had some sort of innate and nonverbal ability to communicate and coordinate their actions, they were actually giving very subtle nonverbal cues to each other all the time. These cues, a slight tilt of the head, a twitch of the mouth, a slow eye roll, were easily interpreted by the other, who would then act upon the signal given. Then in unison, the other twin would know exactly when to stand up, sit, look away, take a bite of food, etc. Jennifer was the one who most often gave these cues, instructing June's actions. After the girls had been at Haverford West School for over two years, and the teachers had made no progress in getting them to communicate, they called Gloria and Aubrey Gibbons to a meeting. Gloria excused the girls' behavior as she normally did, by saying that they were just a little shy. Aubrey responded by saying the girls were receiving good marks, so he didn't consider there to be a problem. Neither parent gave any indication that the girls also did not speak at home. The headmaster ended the meeting believing that the girls were perfectly normal at home and perhaps just didn't feel comfortable in their school environment. No other interventions took place until the doctor arrived at the school to administer routine vaccinations to the students and encountered the Gibbon sisters. By that time, June and Jennifer were almost 14 years old. Dr. John Rees arrived in the fall of 1976 to Haverford West School. The students were required to line up one by one to receive a tuberculosis vaccine. Each child stood before the doctor and was administered an injection in their upper arms. When June and Jennifer each stood before Dr. Rees, he was surprised at the rigidity of their bodies. When he took their arm in his hand, he detected no movement, no response, their limbs almost corpse-like. He looked up and saw each one in turn staring straight ahead, expressionless. The word zombie came to his mind. Neither moved nor flinched as the needle poked their arms. Then they just continued walking forward in a robotic-like way. 
he felt unnerved enough by their behavior to question the headmaster about the Gibbons twins. His inquiry didn't shed much light on their situation. He was only told that they were a funny pair that didn't communicate much with teachers or other students. The doctor was told that the twins were completing their schoolwork well enough and were mostly left alone. He couldn't get the thought of the silent twins out of his mind and asked for permission to call on their parents. When he met with Gloria and Aubrey, he found them to be intelligent, responsible, and caring parents. They told him that the girls rarely spoke, even to their own family, but that they were good girls who didn't cause any problems and did well in school. Dr. Rees was surprised that they weren't more concerned about their children's odd behavior and lack of social connection with others. He was also very concerned that the parents didn't seem to know if the girls were actually able to speak in anything other than their twin language, which they admitted they didn't understand. The doctor wrote in his report, The present home situation is that the twins mix very little with the family except at meals, preferring to go together to their bedroom where they will read and play. When the girls talk to each other, the parents can only recognize the occasional word, but can make no sense of the conversation. Question further, Gloria admitted that the children's pediatrician had suggested their speech problems might be as a result of being tongue-tied, a congenital defect where the tongue's connective tissue is overgrown, making full movement and control of the tongue difficult. The twins could not stick their tongues out past their lips. Even with this possible diagnosis, Gloria and Aubrey had not sought further treatment for their daughters. Dr. Rees asked Gloria if the girls had been breastfed successfully as infants, and she reported that they had. He doubted that the girls were in fact tongue-tied, since this often made breastfeeding challenging, and Gloria reported that the twins had had no difficulties nursing. He consulted with Dr. Evan Davies, a child psychiatrist, and shared his findings on the Gibbon sisters. Dr. Davies first thought that they might be looking at a case of elective mutism a rare condition where a person is able to speak, but chooses not to. He'd never heard of a case of elective mutism in twins and was intrigued. An appointment was made for the girls to be assessed by Dr. Davies at the county health office. The routine questions put to the girls met with the usual response, which was almost none at all. They would not answer verbally, but sometimes would give a slight nod or turn of the head to indicate the negative. Gloria, embarrassed by their silence, jumped in to answer every question in detail. Dr. Davies noted that not only did the girls not speak, but they hardly seemed to move except when he would leave the room or turn his attention away from them. Then he'd hear a flutter of activity and low giggles or whispers. But the second he'd turn back to them, they'd be as still as statues once again. He was finally able to get them to draw some pictures for him, which they did in extreme and deliberate slow motion. At the end of the assessment, he decided that this was a case of elective mutism, with the girls drawing upon each other's strength to continue the refusal to speak. He also thought they most likely possessed a speech impediment that had caused the initial delay in their verbal development. He referred the twins to a speech therapist. Anne Treyhorn had treated a half-dozen children with elective mutism before she began working with June and Jennifer in early 1977. She had a little more luck getting them to answer verbally, but only with occasional one-word answers. Surprisingly, when she asked them to read a poem or passage from a book out loud, they did so eagerly. She was able to determine that they could speak, but did have a speech impediment that caused their speech to sound thick, with S sounds sounding like shh. They also spoke very rapidly, which made them difficult to understand. Finally, they had a West Indian accent that further made deciphering their words a challenge. Anne also noted that June was much more cooperative than Jennifer, Jennifer refused to answer any questions, while June would offer an occasional yes or no or thank you. Sometimes Anne could sense that June was eager to answer a question, but a slight movement or expression by her twin would stop her in her tracks. She felt Jennifer was controlling June and that Jennifer was the clear leader of the pair. Anne said that the thought even came to her that June was possessed by her twin. Around the same time, the girls were sent to a surgeon for a frenulum linguae operation to relieve their tongue tiredness. Neither Dr. Rees nor Anne Treharn thought that the operation was necessary, and after it was performed, it only improved their speech slightly. When the school received the speech therapist's report, it decided that the twins should be transferred to the Eastgate Center for Special Education in Pembroke. June and Jennifer arrived there to begin their classes just a week after their 14th birthday. Their journey to school each day was a bizarre one. 
the school was located eight miles or over 12 kilometers from their home. The head teacher, Kathy Arthur, arrived to pick up the girls at a bus stop half a mile from their house to drive them into Pembroke. Each morning when she arrived, neither girl would be the first to enter the car. Instead, they remained standing on the sidewalk like statues. Kathy would have to get out of her car and lead one girl and then the other to the car and open the door. Still, they would remain standing stiffly outside of the car until Kathy manually bent and folded their knees from behind and forced them to sit in the car, swinging their legs in after them. It sometimes took as long as 30 minutes to begin the drive to school. Kathy quickly realized that the girls were taking nonverbal cues from one another and neither would do anything that the other didn't agree to do at the same time. The problem was neither girl was allowed, it seemed, to make a move before the other. If they couldn't coordinate their actions in near-perfect synchronicity, they wouldn't move at all. They were like two robots connected by an invisible cord who could cross and uncross their legs, turn their heads, and take a sip from their teacups in perfect unison. All this was done seemingly without any outward signs or signals to one another. It was as baffling as it was fascinating to behold. The twins were administered a battery of psychological and personality tests. June scored higher on the intelligence tests. Both girls scored well in comprehension tests, poorly in vocabulary, and even poorer still in arithmetic. Personality tests showed them to be depressed, withdrawn, and socially maladjusted, but also characterized them as independent-minded and without need for outside sympathy or advice. Tim Thomas, the school therapist, spent weeks trying to connect with June and Jennifer to no avail. He finally tried mimicking them by sitting in silence. He soon realized that he'd never win at this game. They could sit in silence for hours, hardly moving a muscle. He gave up. Kathy Arthur also realized that the girls would not speak when being observed, but spoke to each other in their twin language when alone. She set up a hidden tape recorder and left the girls alone. Her idea paid off when she was able to capture on tape the girls speaking to each other whenever she was out of the room. At first, she couldn't comprehend what they were saying. Their speech was so fast and jumbled, it seemed like nonsense. Then, by slowing the tape down, she discovered that they were, in fact, speaking English, just in a very rapid and clipped cadence. The staff ultimately decided that no progress would be forthcoming if the girls were allowed to stay together. It was obvious that they felt that they needed no relationships besides the ones the two of them shared with each other. A more important observation was that the staff now believed that June was being controlled by her sister through subtle signals. They thought they could possibly make progress with June, who seemed more willing to cooperate if her sister was not around to forbid it. Half of the staff agreed the girls should be separated, and the other half believed it was too cruel and were against the idea. Much more debate continued for several weeks until finally, in March of 1978, it was decided that one girl should remain at Eastgate and the others sent to the adolescent unit at Carmarthen. At first, the girls were excited about the prospect of being separated. June wrote in her journal, People keep telling us to change, to turn over a new leaf, but we are waiting for each other to start first. So if we separate, neither of us will know if we changed first. If we separate now, the future will be good for the pair of us. But when reality hit and the day approached when they would be separated, they panicked they began a campaign to convince the administrators to change their minds. Strangely, for girls who refused to speak, they decided that the telephone was their best option. They began calling staff members at their private home numbers. No one could ever figure out how they acquired them and promised to start speaking next week if they were not separated. But at school, the girls continued to remain silent and there was little trust in their promises. Finally, their therapist called the girls together to break the news of the imminent separation. Things aren't going very well for you here, he explained to them. One of you must go to Dr. Davies' residential unit in Carmarthen. The other can stay with us. You can choose who does what. What happened next shocked Tim Thomas. June and Jennifer rose slowly from their seats. They faced each other and their bodies began to tense up, their eyes locked on one another. Before he knew it was happening, Thomas witnessed Jennifer lunge towards her sister with her hands gripped into claws. Both girls began to shriek as Jennifer dug her nails into June's cheek. June grabbed her sister's hair and pulled so viciously that it began to come out in clumps. They continued to scream and attack one another until Thomas, 
finally able to pull his wits together, got between them and pried them apart. As soon as he did so, they once again fell mute and stood limp and motionless. As previously observed, the twins' will was most strong when together, but when separated, their strength ebbed. It made the staff wonder whether the girls would survive the separation without great harm being done to them. Jennifer stayed at Eastgate while June was sent to St. David's Adolescent Unit at Carmarthen. She turned 15 years old soon after arriving, and the staff tried to give her a small party. She refused to respond and just stood unmoving most of the day, her body stiff. She would not get out of bed in the mornings of her own accord, and when she was finally lifted out, she kept her body rigid and had to be propped against the wall like an inanimate object. Most days she spent motionless and crying silently. Her tears flowed down her cheeks unabated. She didn't try to wipe them away or even close her eyes. Staff would come over to periodically wipe her eyes and nose, but she didn't register their presence, and the tears continued to flow for hours. It was a disturbing sight. While it seemed that June missed her sister terribly and was grieving her absence, what she wrote in her journal told a different story. Rather than reporting sadness, she expressed anger towards her twin. Jay was in Eastgate enjoying her life, going home to her own bed, seeing her own family, eating familiar food. I had to suffer the torment of listening to strange conversations, eating strange food. I would not eat with people at the table. Indeed, June refused to eat at all. Staff could not get her to cooperate with the school program or even talk. She continued to cry silently for hours every day. Finally, they threw in the towel. Less than two months after arriving at the school, she was returned to Eastgate. When the sisters were reunited, they began to rebel openly against the staff. Their behavior worsened, and no one could get them to take part in therapy or their schoolwork. Besides reading, they did very little. Tim Thomas noted at this time that Jennifer exerted even more control over her sister. She didn't want June to show even an iota of individuality. If June made the slightest move before Jennifer or responded differently from her twin, Jennifer would become enraged. Thomas would often hear Jennifer chanting to June, You are Jennifer, you are me, over and over. At this point, Eastgate staff had no more ideas for how to reach the twins, so during the last year of their schooling, they were allowed to do what they wished. As long as they weren't causing a disruption, they were generally left alone. There was only one person the twins were interested in communicating with, and it was their obsession with this person that would lead to their eventual downfall. Lance Kennedy was a 16-year-old American boy who was also attending Eastgate School. Most of the students at Eastgate had been sent there due to problematic behavior, as Eastgate's staff of therapists and social workers were believed to be better equipped to deal with children and teens whose emotional and behavioral problems caused them to be expelled from mainstream schools. Lance Kennedy prided himself on his bad boy image, swaggering around the school and bragging about his criminal past, including theft and arson. Jennifer and June became infatuated with Lance. They had always been enamored of anything American— food, music, television shows, and movies, and now they saw Lance as the ideal American boy. He was tall, blonde, and good-looking. They began to follow him around like the love-struck teens they were. Lance didn't think about the Gibbon sisters much at all, except to feel sorry for them. They had no friends at the school, didn't interact with the other students, and were frankly just considered odd by their classmates. They would be bullied at times and even attacked. When this happened, the girls would defend themselves by huddling together burying their heads in each other's arms, and remaining still and silent until their bullies grew tired. Jennifer and June started leaving notes for Lance, slipping them into his school books, his jacket pockets, and his pack of cigarettes. He had no idea that they were from the twins. The girls left Eastgate School at the end of the term in 1979, when they were just shy of 17 years old. There was no further plans for their continued education. The only advice the education board gave to Gloria and Aubrey was to register their daughters for unemployment benefits. The sisters still refused to communicate with their family members and now also decided they would not even sit in the same room with their parents or siblings. Only if the living room was empty would they come out of their bedrooms to watch television. Sometimes they would write a note asking their mother to leave the living room door open so they could watch a program without having to enter the room occupied by their parents or siblings. They would then sit at the top of the stairs, watching TV while hidden from their family members. They spent all their time hidden up in their room, 
only leaving once a week to pick up their benefit check in town. Gloria took their meals up to them like they were hotel guests. They still only interacted with their younger sister, Rosie, with whom they continued to share a bedroom. Now the three girls created their own fantasy world within the four walls of their room. They played with their dolls, giving them elaborate identities, family histories, and entire plot lines, enacting detailed soap opera-like stories. Rosie simply considered it a fun game. But for June and Jennifer, it became their entire world and a substitute for their real-life flesh-and-blood family members. They even titled their fantasy world Happy Families. They kept detailed records of the dolls, notating births, marriages, and other important events. They were particularly interested in sickness, injuries, and death. Many of the children in their families ended up suffering from serious ailments, catastrophic injuries, or early death. They recorded these in detail. For example, these are some of the journal entries. Samantha Miller, age 6, operation on face, never succeeded. Tabitha Miller, age 1, unsuccessful eye surgery. George Gibbons, age 4, died of eczema. Bluey Gibbons, 2 and a half, died of appendix. Susie Pope Gibbons, age 4, died of cracked skull. They spent hours every day playing with their doll families. One positive result of this was that they began to speak much more frequently, but communicated exclusively through the dolls. At about this same time, June and Jennifer also began to write. Perhaps the stories they were creating about their doll families inspired them to begin writing short stories. Most of the fully formed stories were composed by June. Jennifer preferred to create illustrated tales and cartoons. One Christmas, the girls were gifted diaries, and they both began keeping a daily journal of their lives from this time forward. Much of what was later known of their activities during their adolescence came from the many volumes of diary entries they kept in the ensuing years. These journal entries would describe the lives of two young girls who were lonely, isolated, depressed, and often angry at one another. They felt trapped in their twinship. June was especially unhappy and even wrote about feeling suicidal. Neither was happy that they were so completely dependent on one another. They both wrote about feeling like they could never break away and be their own person, but they had no idea how to change the situation. No matter how their teachers, therapists, and parents had tried to help them individuate, both girls believed that to separate from the other would result in certain death. They were convinced that only one twin could survive if this should happen. Neither was ready to make that sacrifice for the other, so they were hopelessly locked together. The two unhappy girls found ways to make life miserable for their family as well. Their older sister Greta became engaged, and Gloria insisted that all five of her children be present at the wedding. The whole family was on pins and needles, wondering how the twins would behave in public and in front of Greta's fiancé and his family. They didn't have to wonder long. As soon as they arrived at the church, the girls went into zombie mode, standing stiffly, their arms hanging at a strange angle out in front of them their eyes cast down at their feet. They stood motionless and expressionless for four hours, only moving when they were forcibly led to another place. They never spoke a word or even made eye contact with anyone. They were propped into place like a pair of mannequins to take the obligatory family pictures with the bride and groom. June would admit in her diary, we ruined the wedding. A new family role was created after this display. The twins would no longer be invited to any family events. In 1980, at the age of 18, the girls gave up playing with dolls and began their writing careers in earnest. They sent away for a mail-order writing course and made it their goal to become, quote, famous novelists, unquote. By this time, the girls were rarely seen even by their own family. When first Greta and then David got married and moved away, Rosie had decided to move out of the bedroom she shared with the twins. This was seen as a betrayal by the twins, and they also no longer spoke to her, although they had only done so within the confines of their room. A typewriter was acquired by the twins, and they could be heard typing away through the day and into the night. But it was the only sign that they even existed. David's wife never saw the girls a single time before or after they were married. When the house was empty, the girls would venture downstairs to make sandwiches and fill a thermos with coffee, which they would take up to their room and continue writing. Almost all the stories the girls wrote were set in the United States. They worked on perfecting American slang 
and what they believed to be American culture. June was the first to complete her novel. Titled Pepsi-Cola Addict, it told the story of an American high school boy who was seduced by his teacher and then sent to a reform school. He later joins a gang of youths and begins committing crimes and lands in prison. June sent her completed manuscript off to a publishing house in the spring of 1984. Jennifer wrote two novels. The first, titled The Pugilist, tells the story of a doctor who, desperate to save the life of his ill child, kills the family dog and transplants the animal's heart into the boy. The spirit of the dog lives on in his son and later takes revenge against the father. Her second novel, Discomania, was a futuristic tale of a group of young people who live in a violent society where riots and murders occur at their school and in their neighborhoods on a daily basis. The group goes to a disco to dance, and the music spurs on even more violent behavior in the teens, causing them to attack and murder one another. The ones who escape this bloodbath subsequently take drugs, steal cars, and most end up dying in tragic and violent ways. The scenes in their novels are surprisingly detailed for two girls who rarely left the rooms most of their lives. A vanity publishing firm accepted June's manuscript, Pepsi-Cola Addict, offering to publish it for a 980-pound fee. June wrote back to the publisher and negotiated to pay in 80-pound installment payments per month. Jennifer was outraged when her manuscript for The Pugilist was rejected. She would continue to send it and her novella, Discomania, to publishers, but would be rejected several times. Both girls wrote in their diaries about their belief that their writing career would lead to fame and riches. Of this, they were completely convinced. While June's efforts met with some success, although only at a price, the rest of their manuscripts continued to be rejected. June still had several payments to go before her novel would be published, and they began to grow disillusioned with being writers. Now they turned their attentions back to an old obsession, boys, namely Lance Kennedy. Their infatuation with the Kennedy boy began when they were just 16. Now at 18, they felt they were ready to try and begin a real relationship with the boy. But Lance had long since left Eastgate, so they first had to try and locate him. They must have used the same skills they had used to find the phone numbers of the staff members years earlier, because they were able to locate it by calling the U.S. Naval Base at Brody. They called several times, speaking to various switchboard operators, until they were able to convince one of them that they were family members of the Kennedys and were given their home number. They called the Kennedy home several times and finally reached Wayne Kennedy, one of Lance's four brothers, and the one closest to him in age. Wayne was a party animal, living at home and unemployed. The twins took turns calling the house, telling Wayne that they were from America and were friends of Lance's. Lance Kennedy had since returned to the U.S. and joined the Navy. The girls tried to get Wayne to provide the Kennedy home address, but he just told them he lived near a certain bar in Fishguard, a coastal town about 24 kilometers or 15 miles north of their home in Haversford West. The girl on the phone sounded odd, Wayne thought, not like an American, but like someone pretending to be American. Still, he was always up for a party and told them to come on up and meet him for a drink. Excited, the girls set out, taking a taxi and a bus and arriving at a rough part of town where the bar was located. There they found a biker gang and a few drug dealers, but not Wayne Kennedy. He didn't show up, and they still didn't know his address. They walked around the town, trying to see if they could guess which might be the Kennedy's home. But it started to get dark, and they had used all their money on cab fare. They had to walk home, which took all night. Even still, the girls had experienced a bit of adventure, and now they wanted it to continue. They began taking a taxi into Fishguard most days and started hanging out at the recreation center in town. The crowd was pretty rough there, but they didn't mind. This was an adventure after all. They also began shoplifting inexpensive items from the town drugstore, a t-shirt or stuffed animal that they would smuggle out in their backpacks. While they never did manage to get Wayne to meet them, they were somehow able to obtain the Kennedys' home address in Welsh Hook, a small town about five miles or eight kilometers closer to them than Fishguard. On one April morning, they arrived at the two-story home that the Kennedys were renting. The twins traveled to the back of the house and peeped through the windows. There was no one home, but they discovered that the front door was unlocked, and they let themselves in. Once inside, the girls wandered from room to room, admiring the family's belongings and even helping themselves to juice from the refrigerator. 
Upstairs, they discovered the boys' bedrooms, where they rummaged through drawers looking for photographs or other personal items. They tried on some of the clothes hanging in the closet. They'd brought along a camera and took pictures of one another sitting at the boys' desks and on their beds. They then returned downstairs and turned on the television in the living room, making themselves comfortable on the sofa. Suddenly, there was a sound of someone opening the front door. They ran to the back of the house and climbed out of a back window. George Kennedy, Wayne and Lance's father, had arrived home with the boy's stepmother, Diane. The couple caught sight of the last girl escaping through the window and went out the front door to confront them as they scurried along the side of the house towards the street. George stopped them and guessed at who they were, the girls who'd been calling their home every day for weeks. He asked them to identify themselves, but the girls had frozen and gone mute. George Kennedy was a nice man, and he took pity on these two skinny girls who looked all of 12 or 13 years old. He never would have believed that they were 18. He asked them where they lived, but still could get no response. Frustrated by their silence, he called a taxi and told them to go home. He said there was no sense in returning again as the boys were on vacation in the Canary Islands. Even after getting caught and told the Kennedy boys were away, June and Jennifer didn't give up. They returned the very next day, climbed through another window, and went straight to Wayne's room. They took away photographs of him they found in his room. With these photos, they now knew what he looked like. They roamed the streets of town trying to find him. They saw him once, but were too afraid to speak to him. The twins returned home and began calling the Kennedy house again. This time, one of the younger boys, Jerry, answered the phone. Jennifer and June talked to him and asked about Wayne. On another day, they called and spoke with both Wayne and Jerry. Barely in his teens, Jerry didn't mind talking to the older girls, who seemed obsessed with his brothers. Jerry convinced Wayne to agree to visit the girls at their home. June and Jennifer were thrilled and quickly gave the boys their address. Days later, the boys showed up in front of the Gibbons house after 10 p.m. The Gibbons family was out of town, visiting Greta and her new baby. The twins let the boys inside, and they all stood around awkwardly, finally sitting down in the living room to watch a movie on television. The boys didn't stay long, but told the girls to meet them the next day at a mall. They said they could get marijuana, and June and Jennifer said they would buy some from them. They had never indulged in drugs or alcohol, but they were desperate to impress the boys and felt this was their best chance. The next day, the girls arrived at the agreed-upon mall to meet Wayne. As would become their pattern, the twins were both fixated on one boy. Where previously it had been Lance Kennedy, now it was 17-year-old Wayne. The girls had dressed up for the occasion and applied makeup. They had cigarettes pressed between their lips in an attempt to look cool and more mature. They'd brought along a bottle of vodka each. Emboldened by the alcohol, the girls were now speaking to the boys, but their speech impediment, coupled with their intoxication, made understanding them difficult. The girls and Wayne took a walk into town and were soon met by Jerry Kennedy, who'd brought along glue to sniff. The girls got high with the boys, and Jennifer, to her great delight, began to make out with Wayne. After that night, the girls showed up daily at the Kennedy home. Sometimes they were turned away by the boys' parents, and sometimes by the boys themselves. Wayne had already decided that he was no longer interested in hanging out with June or Jennifer and made himself scarce when they came around. But his younger brother Carl was interested. 14-year-old Carl was sex-crazed, according to his brothers. He saw these 18-year-old girls as easy pickings and thought they might be up for some fun. Carl was not a nice boy. He alternately worked at seducing the socially awkward twins as well as bullying them. He liked Jennifer more than June, thinking she was more attractive and could, quote, take a punch better than June, who he said was too sensitive. He made out with both girls, but introduced rough sex to Jennifer, who responded eagerly. The twins always showed up with money to buy booze and marijuana and also began sniffing glue with Carl regularly. Both of them fancied themselves in love with Carl and would do whatever he said. He made June watch while he had sex with Jennifer. June became jealous of Carl and Jennifer's so-called relationship. Jennifer, who always expected June to act in lockstep with her, now wanted Carl all to herself. Anger and resentment grew between them until one day, Jennifer could sense her twin's contempt and decided to lash out first. 
They were in the room and began fighting over the radio when Jennifer wrapped the radio cord around June's neck. After a struggle, Jennifer released her sister. June would later write, There is a murderous gleam in her eye. Dear Lord, I am scared of her. She is not normal. She is having a nervous breakdown. Someone is driving her insane. It is me. Not long after this incident, the twins were walking near a stream that was running full and swift. June was still angry at her sister for the previous attack, and now she decided to get revenge. June rushed at her sister, pushing her into the stream and jumping in after her. She was able to overpower Jennifer, pushing her head underwater and holding her under as her sister fought desperately to breathe. A car passed at that moment, its headlights illuminating the two girls struggling together in the water. June let Jennifer go and begged her forgiveness, telling her she loved her. They cried together and asked God to have mercy on them. A week or so after Jennifer had consummated her relationship with Carl, it was June's turn. The twins met Carl in a barn near the Kennedy home, and they all got drunk. June lost her virginity to Carl while her sister watched. Now they were equal once more. The girls continued to visit Carl, drinking, smoking, and sometimes doing drugs with him. He treated them terribly. They had taken to wearing cheap wigs during their trips into town, which only made them look even more bizarre and conspicuous. Carl cruelly taunted them about their appearance, saying they looked ugly and stupid. He attempted to burn the wig with matches, and then threw lit matches at the girls themselves. Carl, excited by the flames, began kicking and punching Jennifer and then grabbing her and fondling and kissing her. Jennifer had grown up living in a fantasy world of soap opera-like passion, sex, and violence of her own making, and she now convinced herself that Carl's abuse was spurred on by love and passion. Because of this, Jennifer never complained or fought back. June felt left out, as Carl clearly still preferred her sister over her. Either way, it was a moot point, because the following month, they discovered that the Kennedys were moving away. George Kennedy had been transferred back to the U.S., and in July, they began packing up the house. The girls made one final visit to see Wayne and Carl before they were set to leave. They asked for souvenirs of their time together, and the boys reluctantly handed them an odd assortment of random items. A photograph of Wayne, a couple of mismatched socks, and one of the boys' t-shirts and an old jacket. June gave Wayne a gold watch she had received for her 18th birthday. The boys then told the twins they needed to leave before their parents returned. The girls walked away from the Kennedy home for the last time, devastated at their loss. June and Jennifer Gibbons were grieving the loss of the Kennedy boys, who had brought sex, drugs, and excitement into their lives. They felt empty and sad and sought out a new way to feel alive again. It was at this point that the girls began a life of crime. They first started wandering around town at night looking for boys. When that didn't pan out, they began stealing bikes that were parked in front of homes on the naval base in order to travel to other neighborhoods. After several of these bike thefts, the girls were caught red-handed. A girl and her mother stopped the twins, but thought Jennifer was a boy because she was wearing a short black wig and Wayne's jacket. They made the twins follow them to their house to return the bike, and then called the police. When the constable arrived, he was also under the impression that Jennifer was a boy. The twins, who had not uttered a word from the moment they were confronted by the bike owner, wrote down on a piece of paper that their names were Lance and Lana Smith. The stolen bike report was radioed in, and the constable described the subjects and told the dispatcher that the pair of thieves would not utter a word. The dispatcher radioed back that the silent twins were the Gibbon sisters. She explained that they were two girls, not a boy and a girl, and that they lived at number 35 Bursey Park in Haversford West. Not wanting to have to deal with the mute pair further, the constable dropped them off at home. But the girls continued to roam the town looking for something to spark the love and passion they'd felt for the Kennedy boys. They began associating with a group of rough boys who formed a neighborhood gang. The girls showed up with money and booze, so were allowed to stay, but were made fun of and bullied. The girls played their music too loud, wore bizarre costumes topped by ugly wigs, and often appeared to be drunk during their escapades around town. Neighbors began to complain to Gloria, but she had not witnessed this behavior as she was often staying with her daughter Greta to help with the grandchildren. Rather than trying to discover what the twins were up to, their mother ignored these reports. 
Aubrey was also not often home, as he had taken to working longer hours. The girls, wanting a romantic relationship with their new associates, began sending scores of love letters to a couple of the hooligans. They, in turn, threatened the girls with death if they continued to find letters in their mailboxes. Jennifer was kicked and spat on, and the girls finally gave up on pursuing the boys in the gang. But Jennifer and June continued to drink and sniff glue, and their behavior declined further. One night in September 1981, they committed an act of vandalism, breaking into a nearby adult training school by smashing a window. They entered the school, watched television, and stole some magazines. A few weeks later, they broke into the school again. This time, they stole more items, a radio, some rain boots, and doll clothes. They continued to break into the building for several days. Jennifer was thrilled by her new hobby. She wrote, I think my ambition now is to be a thief, a real thief. I love being a burglar. Believing themselves to be master criminals, they called the police station to taunt the cops for not catching them. I broke into the Portfield Special School, June confessed to the officer that answered the phone. You'll never catch me. They then vandalized a grocery store and a dress shop by throwing bricks through the windows and continued their crime spree that next night by calling in a false emergency report to the fire department. Additionally, they smashed a window in another school and tried to overturn a car, damaging it in the process. Though their vandalism spree continued for a few more weeks, they began to tire of these petty crimes. So June hatched a new plan. She wanted to make petrol bombs or Molotov cocktails to throw through windows. I'm going to be the biggest arsonist around, June wrote in her diary. The girls continued to call the police to brag about their crimes. One night, their call was traced as coming from a phone booth near the police station. A police car showed up and caught the girls still inside the phone booth. The officers took them in for making a false police report. They didn't believe the girls were responsible for the rash of crimes, but assumed they had called the police station as a prank. After 45 minutes of unsuccessfully questioning the unresponsive girls, police called their mother and were relieved to release them into Gloria's custody. As usual, the girls had just giggled and laughed but hadn't uttered a word in response to the officer's questions. Gloria scolded the girls for their prank, and the matter wasn't brought up again. The girls' first act of arson took place on Saturday, October 24th. They climbed over a fence that surrounded a tractor store, broke into the store's office, and took several items, including a calculator, a pair of headphones, and a flashlight. They then took out a small can of petrol they brought with them, emptied it over desks and chairs, and lit a match. As that room began to go up in flames, they entered a second room, pouring more fuel over the furniture. Someone walking down the street heard the glass from the front window shatter as the fire raged inside the store. The fire department was called, and minutes later, trucks arrived to fight the fire. June and Jennifer were among the crowd watching them battle the flames. The fire caused over $100,000 in damage, and a firefighter was injured. June and Jennifer read the account in the newspaper with pride. In November, they vandalized another school. June wrote, Jay and I done it again, broke into Tasker School, and I had my taste of destruction. A good way to let off steam, don't you agree? Stole green snorkel, parka, pair of trainers, and books. Their very last criminal act took place on November 8, 1981. They were prowling around the business district again and picked Pembroke Technical College as their next target. They went around to the back of the building and threw a brick through a window. Since the incident of arson at the tractor store, more police officers had been placed on foot patrol nearby, so a constable who was just a block away heard the glass shattering. Immediately, the constable called for more officers. He walked to the back of the building and discovered the broken window. Another noise came from inside the building, and he then saw a match being struck inside. At about the same time, Backup officers arrived and witnessed two figures inside the building, spreading liquid from a bottle over a desk and onto the carpets. They rushed into the building and two officers grabbed June, while another two took Jennifer. They found lighter fluid and matches on June and some stolen items from the college inside Jennifer's backpack. At the station, the girls wouldn't speak, but a clever officer decided to ask them to respond to his questions in writing. They cooperated, but only admitted to the break-in that night. Once the girls were identified, Gloria and Aubrey were called. Aubrey, perhaps not told by Gloria of the girls' previous run-in with the law, thought there must be some mistake. 
His girls had never been in any trouble, he explained. He cooperated with the police fully and even allowed them to come into his home and search the twins' bedroom. There, the police found several items that had been reported missing from cars and buildings that had been vandalized and burglarized. June and Jennifer were charged with burglary and arson and remanded into custody for their own safety and the safety of the community. Like most things, June and Jennifer had a romanticized version of jail. They believed they would be put in a quiet room together, brought their meals, and left alone to read or nap. The reality at the Puckle Church Remand Center, where they were first locked up, was much different. They went into their silent and uncooperative mode, but the staff at Puckle Church didn't have the time nor desire to play their games. Upon intake, when the girls wouldn't cooperate and take off their clothes to step into a disinfectant bath, they were forcibly stripped, picked up, and forced into the tub. Rather than finding themselves in a silent chamber, they were subjected to banging, shouting, cursing, and threats heard throughout the corridors of the women's wing of the jail. Their biggest fear was that they would be separated, of course, but they were relieved when they were placed into a cell together. They had to be forced into their cell, and they just stood inside the door of the small room, holding onto their jail-issued blankets and nightclothes. They were told to make their beds and change clothes but the twins remained stiffly in place, one standing behind the other for over an hour. A tray of food was brought to them, but they still didn't move. Another hour passed, and one of the officers peeked into the girl's cell. They were still standing in the same place, still holding their bedding out in front of them. The officer was sure that they hadn't so much as twitched a muscle. Two night staff officers entered their cell and pried the sheets out of their hands. The officers made up their bunks, and when the girls didn't respond to their orders to get into bed, they lifted one and then the other onto their mattresses and laid them down. They turned off the lights and left. One of the guards looked back and saw that the girls had not lowered their heads onto their pillows, but were rigidly holding their heads just inches above it. The guard re-entered the cell and pushed their heads down. Their eyes were still open. She swiped her hand over their eyes, shutting their eyelids for them. As she looked at the two prone silent figures, a cold chill passed through her body. These were the strangest two prisoners she'd ever encountered, she thought. The next morning, the girls would have to endure another gauntlet, breakfast. For years, June and Jennifer had not eaten a meal in front of anyone but each other. They had even refused to dine with their own family members. Now, they would be required to sit in a large communal dining hall with over 70 other women. They were handed food trays as they entered and made to stand in the line to pick up their food self-service style. This could not go well. Sure enough, once they reached the front of the line, they stood frozen while the line continued to grow longer behind them. The other inmates began to yell and curse at them to hurry up and move the line along. June, overwhelmed, stared at her feet, and the tray fell from her hand, crashing to the floor. Now all eyes were on her. This was her worst nightmare. A guard came to rescue her by grabbing her arm and directing her to sit at a table. Jennifer was placed near her. Another guard grabbed their trays and some food and placed it in front of them. They were very hungry, but neither girl touched their food. Their silence and zombie-like behavior continued for several more days. They were required to spend time each day in the exercise yard and associating with the other female inmates in the recreation room, playing cards, watching television, or chatting quietly. The girls huddled together, silent and unmoving. They had to be forced to sit, stand, and walk. After a few days of not eating, they were transferred to the prison hospital. There they would be observed and assessed to see if they were suffering from any physical or mental ailments. The twins had exhibited an eating disorder for several years. They would starve themselves and then binge on unhealthy food, sometimes gorging themselves until they vomited. Now at Puckle Church, they added a new element to their eating disorder. They decided that one twin would refuse to eat while the other would eat both meals. Then they would switch off. But they began to argue about who would be allowed to eat and when the changeover would happen. When one of the girls appeared to be getting thinner than the other, the twin who was allowed to eat would become jealous. They would then both refuse to eat. The fights became physical, and they would attack and scratch at each other. The guards would find the girls covered in bloody scratches on their faces, arms, and necks in the morning. 
The twins were separated in December of 1981, with June transferred back to the assessment unit and Jennifer remaining in the hospital ward. As they waited during delay after delay of their trial date, they spent time writing, and Jennifer attended art classes in the occupational therapy room. They were required to meet with their attorney to prepare for the trial, but he could not get them to speak. He couldn't figure out how he was supposed to defend these young women, who he assumed were mute. One day, the girl surprised him by sending word that they would speak to him, but only by telephone. Their attorney, Michael Jones, sat in a room next door to the girls to take their phone call. This was how he learned that the girls were not mute, but were perfectly able to speak English and were intelligent enough to cooperate in their own defense. This discovery did not go well amongst the staff at Puckle Church. They had been putting up with the Gibbon sisters' silent shenanigans for weeks now, and learning that they were able to speak made them feel manipulated and foolish. They now became more punitive with the girls. Jennifer and June retaliated against the guards' treatment by shutting down even more and thwarting their efforts to get them to cooperate. Whenever they were forced to eat with the other inmates or join in activities in the exercise yard, they walked at a snail's pace, refused to make eye contact with anyone, and would keep one arm draped across their forehead to shield their eyes. Each twin would hold the opposite arm up, and sometime later, they would switch arms. They were able to do this in perfect synchronicity, like a military move. When they did want something from the guards, they would approach them, but still only point and mumble rather than speak clearly. Their behavior and refusal to follow instructions caused them to be put on report and separated, and sometimes one or both would be sent to the hospital ward. But the twins were always reunited to begin their games with the officers all over again. After these reunions, they would sit in silence for long periods, and they eventually began writing diary entries once more. These consisted of long entries, written in tiny cramped printing that filled up the entire page and the margins of their notebooks. Their writing was almost as indecipherable as their spoken language. Other times, for reasons unknown to the officers, the girls would jump up and begin attacking each other. They would sit ignoring each other for hours and then would start staring at each other with undisguised contempt before almost simultaneously flying at each other and scratching at each other's faces and pulling hair. They were never at peace. When they were together, they seemed to hate each other and would fight viciously. When they were apart, they became almost catatonic with grief and would refuse to eat until they were reunited. The girls' entries in their journals illustrated their anger, frustration, and rage at their situation. Jennifer found herself increasingly irritated by the mere sight of her twin. She fantasized about beating her, hurting her, and extinguishing her from her life. She wrote, She would be dead, and I would be free to do what I liked, to become me. She's scared. She knows that one night I will get up. I will stand over her bed. I will tighten the noose in my hand. It would be the best thing I would have done in all my life. I will laugh at the past, stamp on her grave. June's entries told of her depression about missing out on a normal life. She wrote, Now I am approaching 19, this bitterly crucial age, nearly two decades on earth. I feel wasted. I should have done something great by now. Not crime. Marriage, a child, traveling. I can see myself in my late 30s. I might be childless. I might be in a mental home. My parents will be old. My days of crime will be over and forgotten. Where will Jay be? Will we unbelievably still be together, sharing a flat, recluses, inferior to the world? June did receive one bit of good news at this time. Her novel, Pepsi Cola Addict, had finally been published. She now considered herself a famous criminal and a soon-to-be famous author. But this good news only served to remind June how much she had lost. June now blamed Jennifer for holding her back in life, not allowing her to have friends or associate with others. If she had not been a twin, June believed, she would be happy and successful, not locked away and wasting the best part of her youth while awaiting trial for arson and burglary. There's a lot more to this strange and fascinating story. That's coming up next week in part two of the Gibbon Sisters, The Silent Twins. But if you're a Patreon supporter, you can get it early. It will be available on Wednesday. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to become a patron. For as little as $2 a month, you can get early releases, ad-free episodes, a welcome packet of Once Upon a Crime stickers and other merchandise, and bonus content. 
Don't forget, CrimeCon is being held this weekend in New Orleans. June 7th through 9th, you'll find me on Podcast Row at the Riverside Hilton. You can get more details and purchase tickets at CrimeCon.com. You can still use my discount code, ONCE20, for 10% off your registration. And on Saturday night, June 8th, you can come hang out with me and a whole bunch of other podcasters and celebrity guests in the Spirit Bar located in the Hilton Riverside. I'll be there along with Southern Fried True Crime, Moms and Murder, Wine and Crime, The Trail Went Cold, and more. You never know who'll show up. Come on out and hang with some true crime heads. This event is open to all, and you don't need a CrimeCon ticket to attend. Get more details at the Facebook page or on Twitter at Upon a Crime. We'll see you there. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia, and my copy editor is Crystal Dernan. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.